0: And I'd like to begin with one or two questions. First one, <clears throat> have you ever wondered why is it that God doesn't take a person straight to heaven on the day that he gets saved? Why does God allow him to keep going through the rest of his life struggling with sin and temptation and persecution and all sorts of trials and tribulations, which the answer is, God will take us out in his own good time. It might be soon, like that thief on the cross, he went to heaven that very day. But for others, it'll be decades, saved young in life and lived to be 90 or 100 years old. Second question is similar to that. Why is it that it's been almost 2,000 years since Jesus was here, and though there have been many people converted over the centuries, why is, why is Jesus delaying to come back? Why does he allow his people to suffer persecution, and millions of Christians have been put to death? What's he waiting for? And the answer is, he'll take care of that in his own good time. He's got purposes for this. Sometimes we individually feel like we're on a losing team. Or you look at Christianity and say, we look like the losers, which is, of course, what non-Christians say. We're on the losing team. So we look at the world around us and we grieve in anguish. We say, can't there be a better world We vote right, we pray right, we live godly lives, and it doesn't seem to have much effect in the world around us. And so we yearn for a better world. What's God waiting for? Years ago, someone wrote a book on the book of Revelation and entitled it, There's a New World Coming. And I like that title. In Revelation 17 and 18, uh, in the last few weeks, we looked at, the rise and fall of what's called Mystery Babylon the Great Harlot, an evil, worldwide, anti-Christian system. And then in chapter 18, it falls. Fall and fallen is Babylon the Great. And that leads us up to something here in chapter 19, the ultimate defeat of Satan's kingdom on earth and the coming of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the answer to those questions is the game is not over. God's time hasn't come, but in chapter 19, the time will come. We're not on the losing side. Our team will win. So we see in chapters 19 and 20, God wins, his people win, and his universal kingdom is set up and the devil's kingdom crumbles. So this morning, we look at chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. The great celebration and worship in heaven. And then we'll get to a section that's, I guess you could call it, tough medicine for us to swallow. And then that's followed by some very sweet promises as we look at these 10 verses. Verse 1, John now hears this other loud voice. Not from an angel, but this great multitude in heaven, and they're worshiping God. Remember, that's one of the themes of Revelation telling us what's going to be like in heaven. Worship, singing, falling down, and adoration before God. As contrasting with what goes on in the world, people are worshiping the Antichrist, and behind him, the devil. Notice it says, this great multitude of Christians and angels. Now, we are outnumbered by the devil, by the demons, and by unbelievers. Always has been like that. It will continue to the second coming. And yet, Revelation 5, 9 says that though we are outnumbered by them, we are still a great multitude that no man can number. And that's what it says here. We are this great multitude that's either shouting or singing with a loud voice, all in in unity and in harmony. Now we see the opposite in the Bible and in history. In the book of Acts, it talks about these hundreds and thousands of Ephesians gathering and they're chanting, Great is Diana of the Ephesians, this pagan goddess. And throughout history, there have been other such multitudes, the Germans, uh, the Nazis during the Nuremberg rallies. Have you ever seen the videos of that? Tens of thousands of them all chanting in fanaticism, Sieg Heil! Of course, this is the theme of the world. Worshipping goddesses or dictators. And behind all that is the devil himself. But John gets a sneak peek of what's going on in heaven and will be worldwide one day. This chorus of Hallelujah! singing victorious praises to God. Won't it be great to be part of that harmonious multitude in heaven? When we die, we will be part of this. We will be chanting and singing and shouting. Great is not Diana and certainly not the Fuhrer or any other antichrist. Look at the text here. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. That's going to be great to be part of that number. Now notice one word in particular there, hallelujah, some have it with an H, hallelujah, some without an H, hallelujah. What does that word mean? It's a Bible word, it's a Hebrew word. I'll tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean something like hooray or wow or man, that's something else. I guess there's some resemblance to that. Uh, Hallelujah is a Hebrew word that's usually transliterated rather than translated. It's just taken straight over from the Hebrew, and you can pronounce it in Greek, Spanish, or whatever. In fact, around the world, when the Bible is translated, they usually just have it as hallelujah. And still people wonder, what does it mean? Well, I'll tell you what it means. It puts together two Hebrew words, hallel and yah. Hallel is the word for praise or worship, and Yah is a shortened form of Yahweh, the proper name of God, sometimes pronounced Jehovah. So you put it together, it means praise the Lord. You find it dozens of times in the book of Psalms. Sometimes it's hallelujah, sometimes it's simply praise the Lord. But it's only found four times in the New Testament, all of them right here in Revelation 19. And yet it's found in many of the great hymns. Hallelujah, what a Savior, for example. Every Christmas we hear it in Handel's Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus. But as I said, it's usually not translated, it's just taken over as Hallelujah. Around the world and Christians are using this very word. Years ago I heard a story about two Christians that were in an airport waiting for the gate to open. And uh, they had never met. And they didn't know each other's language, but they looked and they noticed they were both reading the Bible. And so they tried to communicate and and they couldn't understand each other's language. So one of them just simply lifted up the Bible, pointed up and said, hallelujah. And the other one lifted up the Bible and said, amen. And they had worship together. Because amen is also rarely translated. It simply means let it be. Well, in heaven... As it says here, we will say hallelujah, and then in verse 4, amen, hallelujah. Now John is getting a glimpse of what's going on in heaven right now, and will always be like this. And we wonder what it's going to be like. The day will come when every Christian will be taken out of this world one by one through the door of death, and we will notice an immediate difference. No more sin, crime, or any such thing. We will immediately notice the mood of joyful, reverent worship. And that's what John's been experiencing for some period of time, getting these visions. And then we will notice that immediately. We will be perfectly holy and we'll just fit right into this choir that's singing and praising God. That's one reason God keeps us waiting, to whet our appetite, to say, Oh, I can't wait to be in that number one day. Verse 2 continues, says, True and righteous are God's judgments. He has judged this great harlot, mystery Babylon, that corrupted the earth with her fornication, and God has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Notice, true and righteous are God's judgments. That is not the belief of unbelievers. They gripe, they complain, they even accuse God. Atheists start off by simply blaming God. If there's a God, why would he allow all these tragedies? And then they say, well, God wouldn't allow it, therefore there is no God. And many unbelievers say the exact opposite of this verse. They say untrue and unrighteous are what God's doing and They even have the audacity to blame God in my open-air evangelism. I've seen people shake a fist and say, I accuse you, God. And they do it around the world in French. J'accuse, or I accuse God. They've got it backwards. God's judgments are true and righteous. Ours are not. Who Who do we think we are that can dare accuse God? C.S. Lewis wrote a book says, God has been put in the dock of accusation. No, he is the judge. He is not on trial. We are on trial. In the book of Ezekiel, God says, you say my ways are unfair? Is it not your ways that are unfair? God will set it right one day at the second coming and he'll show that he is the judge. Now here's an application of this verse. True and righteous are God's judgment. We should never ever question God's ways. They may look unjust to us because we would say I don't see what, why God allows that. We need to submit when we don't understand. Search the scriptures for more understanding. And then like this loud chorus say God's judgments are right. We should never question them. For example, those that see the Bible teaching on election, where God has chosen some and not others, and they say, that just doesn't seem fair. Romans 9 basically says, who are you to judge God? God is absolutely fair and just in election. Or there are those that say, I don't see how a loving God could punish people in hell forever and ever. Just hold it right there. That is the first step to questioning the justice of God. We should never question God's justice. We should say like this here, true and righteous are his judgments. You see, it takes faith now to submit, but to believe that God will one day vindicate his honor. He will explain and answer all questions concerning why and how he has done certain things. In theology and apologetics, we call that theodicy. We try to defend the ways of God. We don't have to. All we have to do is say, this is what God himself says. If you have questions, take it up with him, and you better be careful. One day he will vindicate himself perfectly, and nobody will ever be able to object. So what we should do now is simply, as they do here, bow before him. And not only that, they don't simply submit grudgingly, they submit willingly as an occasion to worship God. The celebration of worship, you'll notice, is on the occasion, not of some worldwide revival, but of the destruction of evil, mystery Babylon, the great harlot. That's the celebration they were doing. They say, praise the Lord, he is omnipotent, he has judged this evil system. Now, notice the contrast with the previous two chapters, is Mystery Babylon is crumbling, worldwide sinners are mourning. Oh, she's gone. Now we see, from God's point of view, Christians and angels are celebrating, not mourning. It's like what Jesus predicted in Luke 6. He said, blessed are you who mourn now, for you shall one day rejoice. Woe to you that laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. God will turn the tables and everything will be put in the proper place. Luke 15, Jesus said, angels rejoice when even one sinner repents and believes in Jesus. Now, this is the hard medicine I told you about. How could people in heaven, angels and Christians, rejoice at the downfall of a system? And it's not just an impersonal system. It's made up of sinners. That are being judged. So, the state of the question is how can holy beings celebrate the doom of lost sinners? We could say, well, I could understand them celebrating the overthrow of the Antichrist and the devil and the demons, but what about human beings that are lost being judged? That's the state of the question. Let's take it a step further. These are in heaven celebrating, we will be there in heaven one day. How will we respond when we see not only mystery Babylon and the kingdom of the Antichrist crumble, crumble, but as we see lost sinners, even sinners that we know and love, being punished in hell? It's a hard question. We need to set aside our preconceived opinions And be like these here. And see it from God's point of view. Fortunately the Bible has given us many other places in scripture on this point. For example. Deuteronomy 32.43. God says. Rejoice O Gentiles. With his people. The Jews. For he. God will avenge the blood of his servants. And render vengeance to his adversaries. And that fits in here. Notice it goes on to say. God has avenged the blood of the Christian martyrs. Who have died at the hands of. Of mystery Babylon and Antichrist. God has not been silent. He's been watching. And one day he will avenge them. Back in chapter 6. The souls of the martyrs are crying out. Lord when will you avenge our blood. And he says just wait. The time is coming. And in Revelation 19. The time will come. Then there is the example of Exodus 15. We've already seen this in Revelation. When God delivered his people from Egypt. And took them through the Red Sea. Here comes Pharaoh and all of his armies to go after them. And God sent the the waters of the of the Red Sea over them and drowned them, even the horses and the bodies were washed off upon the sea. How did the Jews respond? Did Moses say, Let's have a moment of silence in memory of a great man that shook his fist at God? No. Look at the text, Exodus 15. They began to sing and even dance. And the women went around with tambourines singing what's called the Song of Moses, which is repeated in Revelation. Why? Because they said, God's enemy has been punished. Now, that is a foretaste of the celebration of the downfall of not just Pharaoh, but of Satan, not just of of his armies, but of the demons and lost sinners. And so we will sing that Song of Moses of celebration. There's more. In Mark 9, 44, Jesus quotes the last verse of Isaiah, sixty six twenty four. It says this, They shall go out and look on the dead bodies that are in hell, where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. But notice it says they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of God's enemies. Just like back there, Pharaoh and the armies, and the fall of mystery Babylon, we will see... God punish all of his unrepentant enemies. Psalm 58:10 says, the righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance, just like at the end of World War II. Only a few of us, few of you here are old enough to remember that. VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, the Third Reich has fallen, and there was literally dancing and singing in the streets of the United States and Great Britain and France and elsewhere. And then VJ Day. The victory over Japan, they would say, It's over, it's over, we won. That is just a small foretaste of what Revelation nineteen predicts, not just the fall of the Third Reich and of the Shinto Japanese Empire, but of the empire of the devil and of Antichrist. Proverbs eleven ten says, When the wicked perish, there is jubilation just like when a notorious criminal mass murderer is convicted of crime and sent either to life imprisonment or to death by execution, people says that finally justice is being served. And that's what they see here in Revelation 19. Justice finally being served. You can also take this a step further, not just at this occasion, but throughout history. History. This is what happens in heaven as they see God's enemies being punished. Those in heaven will eternally see God's enemies being punished in hell. But this isn't proud glee as if to say, well, we're better than them. No, it's think about it like this those in heaven, including us one day, will look at these being punished and eternally in hell when we will humbly. Thank God and say, God, if you didn't save me, that would be my doom. There but for the grace of God go I. How does that apply to us now? Should we dance on the grave of those lost sinners? No. As John Calvin once said, this is a prediction of us in our perfect purified state. We're not there yet. So we should be like Jesus in Luke 19, 41, weeping for the lost that die in their sins. And so rejoicing for the fall of someone like Hitler, a notorious criminal, should be the exception. Obviously, there'll have to be some big change between us now and in our glorified state. In our glorified, sanctified state, we will be like God. We won't be divine, but we will see things as He does. We will be holy. And we will rejoice as we see God punishes those that deserve to be punished. Kind of like when David and others in the Psalms prayed for God to punish his enemies. So we will worship God and celebrate the downfall of all non-Christian, pseudo-Christian, and anti-Christian systems that raise up their fist against God. Whether they're religious, political, moral, or economic. Just think one day... The empire of atheism will crumble. Islam will crumble. Hinduism, Buddhism, and all false religions. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism. And then all systems that promote and practice evil. Abortion, LGBT, organized crime, political corruption. All these are simply branches of the kingdom of Satan and God promises here they will all crumble like Mystery Babylon And there will be a loud shout up in heaven. Hallelujah. Satan's kingdom has fallen. Not only that, the verse says, He has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. God will execute righteous revenge and justice. Not losing his temper like we do. But he will finally, at the appointed time, judge all of his enemies from Satan on down. And the irony is this. Look at the text. He'll avenge on her the blood of his servants shed by her. When Noah got off the ark and offered a sacrifice, God said, basically instituting capital punishment, and he said this. Him that sheds the blood of man, by man shall his be his blood be shed. Mystery Babylon, this evil system that's gone on for centuries, will murder Christians and shed their blood. And God says, tit for tat, lex talionis, as you did, it will be done to you. And that will happen to all non-Christians. They will be punished. Verse 3, again they said, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Just like in Revelation 14 says, the smoke of hell goes up forever and ever. In Genesis 19 when God punished Sodom and Gomorrah and it was like a volcano erupting and destroyed them all with fire and brimstone. It says the smoke rose like the smoke out of a furnace and it will rise up, it says here, forever and ever. It continues, verse 4. The 24 elders and the four living creatures, these mysterious angels, they fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And this will also be the chorus of all Christians and all holy angels up in heaven, but obviously not the demons and lost sinners. And it says here they worship God who alone sits on the throne. Antichrist and pharaohs and pharaohs for history have all tried to sit on the throne of the world. And they've all crumbled and they all will crumble because only God Almighty deserves to be on that. He is on that throne. He has never deserted it. And on the last day of his His theodicy, his vindication, he will show that he is the Lord God Almighty that is on it. And those in heaven see this. And what do they do? They fall down, willingly submit to him, and they worship him because he is the Lord God Almighty. Worship in heaven, they, they do this as a symbol of their submission to him, willingly, not grudgingly. Do we willingly submit to God as an act of worship? And sometimes we should show it by getting on our knees or on our face and say, Lord God, you are the one that sits upon the throne of the universe. Verse 5, and a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye servants and those who fear him, both small and great. Praising God is not only our privilege, but our duty, and it's a sin if we don't, and it's a virtue if we do. Do you worship God? Do you obey this command to praise the Lord? Sometimes it's hard when you're in the valley of tears and affliction, but praise God anyway. Why? Because God is still God, and He not only commands our praise, He deserves our praise. You know, in the Lord's prayer, we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What are they doing in heaven? They're praising, they're worshiping. So this should characterize our worship service as well as our worship lives. Verse 6, here comes out loud voice again. A voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude again. As the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty thundering sang, here's the word again, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Loud, loud, have you ever heard a loud voice like a, everybody in a football stadium all singing the national anthem or some song celebrating their team? Very loud. My mind went back to one of the loudest I ever heard was before, and it was before I became a Christian. I went to a rock concert to hear a group that was reputed to be the loudest rock and roll band in the world. It was called Blue Cheer out of San Francisco and I was up close. It was so loud, Steve, I literally felt the coins in my pocket jingling like jingle bells. And my whole body was like this, and that's what kids want today, that rush of the loud voice. This will be even louder, but it won't be deafening and it won't be painful to us. Did you see in the news a few weeks ago at the celebration of Queen Elizabeth's anniversary and the royal family on the balcony, you had all these um, RAF jets flying low and it was so loud. Did you see the little prince do like this? We won't do like that in heaven because we're going to be shouting and singing along with this great multitude. Loud to say we really believe it and God deserves it. Notice this saying, hallelujah again. And the Lord God omnipotent or almighty reigns. The Greek word here is ponticrator. He is able to do anything that he wants to. And does this sound familiar? Handles Messiah and he shall reign forever and ever and ever. Who? The Lord God omnipotent. Do you praise God for his omnipotence? This should be food for worship that should fuel our hearts to say he is omnipotent, he's omnipresent, he's omniscient, he is almighty, he can do anything, he is loving, he is wise. This should move us to worship him as they do here in heaven. Now the next couple of verses are the, the sweet ones, as I said. They're singing, let us be glad and rejoice. Not just because of the downfall of Satan's empire and mystery Babylon, but here it says, let us be glad, rejoice, give him glory. For the marriage of the lamb has come. And his wife has made herself ready. Now the lamb is Jesus and he's been called that repeatedly in Revelation. Do you notice the irony? Lambs, sheep. They don't get married. I've never, heard, I've never been invited to the wedding of a sheep to another one, or goats or horses, no. But this lamb will be married one day. From time to time I've been asked, why didn't Jesus get married when he was on earth? And of course the answer is nobody would be worthy of him. But, you know, there are these fanatics that say Jesus did get married. You've heard of the Da Vinci Code that say he married Mary Magdalene, they had children, and so forth. Did you know the Mormons say Jesus not only was married, he married many women. He married Mary Magdalene, he even married the two sisters, Mary and Martha, and many others. No, he wasn't married here on earth. But he will be married in a spiritual way, not just to one woman, but to all women and men that are Christians. You see, we make up not only the body of Christ, the one body with many members... We make up the one bride of Christ with many members. If you are a Christian, you are a bride of Christ. And as Christians together, we make up the ultimate body of Christ. This is a theme in the Bible. Second Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 11.2, Paul says, I betrothed you as a virgin to Christ. Isaiah 54.5, your maker is your husband. And of course, this was typified in that wonderful book, The Song of Solomon. This is also explained, and we get applications from this in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as the church's submission to Christ. And it takes, it takes several stages according to the, the, the Hebrew customs of marriage. There that the uh, two fathers would engage their son and their daughter even before the, they were born. And then when those grow up and at the right age of consent... They are then betrothed as they say, I will agree to marry you. And then they are married in their week-long custom. You've heard of that. And that's typifying we were engaged to Christ back in the eternal covenant of redemption. We were his daughters by creation and he engages us to his only begotten son. And then in time we are betrothed when we say, I do want to be married to Jesus. I belong to him. I believe in him. But the ultimate wedding has not taken place yet. That happens, as it says here, this marriage feast of the Lamb that we see in verses 7 and 8. I don't know how many of you are former Catholics or know much about Catholicism, but did you know that every nun, when she takes her vows... Is given a wedding ring on her finger because she's not supposed to get married. She says, I am married to Jesus. I hope that they really are married to Jesus, but we don't have a gold band on our finger to say we're married. Did you know the Bible does say He has given us an engagement ring that's not physical? I wonder how many of you would know what it is. Ephesians 1 tells us what it is it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is that guarantee that we are now engaged and we will be married to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's permanently on our hand, that is on our heart, and will never be taken off of us. So brethren, this is a glorious promise that we now belong to Jesus and we will one day be united with him in celestial marriage, sharing love from him. You see, Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ. He will love us forever and ever. And we will be like that bride that will lovingly submit to him forever and ever, this eternal, unbreakable romance with the king of lovers named Jesus Christ. This is one of the great blessings. In a way, I dare say, this is even a higher privilege than justification or adoption. We will be united with Jesus in this perfect bond of love forever. This is just one area in which Christianity vastly surpasses all pagan religions. Maybe you know a Muslim. Try sharing the gospel with them and ask this question if you dare. Do good Muslims not only go to paradise, and they'll say yes, but are they married to Muhammad? They'll look at you and say, are you crazy? Do Muslims get married to Allah? Allah. He'll get violent. they say, no, Allah has no bride, no children. How dare you ask such of a question? That's too intimate. And we can say, but the one true God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ invites us into this eternal union with Jesus who is both God and man and we will enjoy his love and intimacy forever. That is beyond their scope. That's beyond their pay grade. But it's a great blessing to us. One day we will be married to Jesus. Heard a story a few years ago about a Christian woman. She was saved as a little child and as she grew up and went through the stages of life, she saw all of her girlfriends get married except her in her 20s, her 30s, her 40s, even her early 50s and she is thinking, I guess it's passed me by. All those years she had sewn and made her own wedding dress and had it hung in the closet but she never got to wear it and then one day the doctor says my dear you have an incurable fatal disease and you will be dying so the woman spoke with her elderly father and says daddy I've got a big message for you it's something important an announcement and he came to her bedside and said what is it and she says I'm going to be married real soon get the dress out and he says, oh, my dear, you're, you're dreaming, you're hallucinating. And she says, no, Daddy, I will soon go to be married to my beloved Jesus. Would you bury me in my wedding dress? She died, and she was buried in her wedding dress. I thought of that story recently as I conducted the funeral of our dear sister Connie Hawk. She'd never been married, lived to be 77, converted young, served the Lord. She is a bride of Christ. We miss her. But we too will be married to Jesus. Now what's our wedding gown? Look at verse 8. You know, some brides inherit a wedding gown, some buy one and keep it. Maybe they take it out and wear it on their anniversary. Other ones make their own or they rent one. This wedding gown is given to us. Look at the text. To her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. It's given. You might say, well, it says here it's their good deeds. I thought the wedding garment is the imputed righteousness of Christ. Let's get real theological for a second. I'm a theologian. I'm paid to do that, and I'm not going to apologize. The garment of Christ's righteousness, which Isaiah calls the robe of righteousness, is imputed to us for justification. Once we are justified, he begins to sew this other garment of imparted righteousness into us, whereby he gradually sanctifies us. You see the difference? And that when we are finally sanctified, when we die, it's as it were, he holds up the gown and says it's completed. Ephesians 1 and 5 talks about this. Ephesians 1, 4, he has elected us so that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. And then in chapter 5 it says Christ loves his bride and cleans her up. He sanctifies her in order to present to himself a beautiful, glorified Bride. Do you see how these two work together? You know, I have attended many weddings, and I performed a number of weddings. I've never seen an unattractive bride. It's like God gives all brides a certain extra glow of joy and beauty, regardless of whatever gown she is wearing. Can you just imagine this spiritual beauty? Of the perfect holiness of the bride of Christ. It says in Romans 8 we have been chosen to be glorified. To be conformed to his image. He is holy. We will be made holy. He is beautiful. We will be holy. The glory and the beauty of the most glorious one Jesus and his bride. We will be glorified so that it will be a perfect match. We can hardly imagine that. Meditate upon that. If you're here and you're not a Christian, do you know that the Lord Jesus Christ actually proposes spiritual marriage to you? He says, come, accept my proposal, be my bride, be married to me and spend an eternity of love with me. What a glorious proposal. Come and be, be betrothed to him and later married to him. Or, if you do not, and you die lost, you will die not as part of the bride of Christ, but as part of Mystery Babylon, the great harlot that is doomed to destruction. We conclude with verses 9 and 10. Then he said to me, Write, Kind of dictating to John, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. Who are those that are called to the marriage supper? And people think, well, that must be the Christians. No, we are the bride. I'm inclined to think, no, he is inviting the guests to the wedding. And the guests are the witnesses, the angels. They are never married to Christ. They are the holy witnesses of this celestial wedding. Verse 10, I, John, fell at his feet of the angel to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. John was so overwhelmed by what the angels showed him and what John heard that he falls down and worships him. But notice the angel immediately says, stop that. I am not God. Only God deserves to be worshipped. Or as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Angels refuse to be worshipped. So he stops him. Colossians 2 warns about cults that worship angels like the Gnostics did. Or people that overly exalt angels when all their adoration be, should be for God. But it's not just angels. Sometimes we're tempted to worship humans. Acts chapter 10, Cornelius shows up at the house of Peter and he falls down at his feet. That was an act of worship. Peter said, get up, get up. I'm just a man. I cringe when I see people fall at the feet of the Pope. Or of other such people. The Bible says give honor to honor, uh, him to whom honor is due. But worship only to God who alone deserves it. Many years ago I met a fundamentalist Baptist preacher in a small town in South Texas. Not far from where I was living at the time. And I would read the little book that he had written. And I said, you told a story about when you were a chaplain in World War II. Is it true? He said, yeah. So he told it to me again. He was a chaplain in um, General Patton's army that invaded... Um, Italy and liberated Rome. And when they came into Rome, Patton lined up like 76 of all of his chaplains to meet the Pope. And one by one, they all fell down and kissed his ring until they came to the last one, this Baptist preacher, who stood there at attention. And the Pope looked at him and said, well, Where are you from? And he says, I'm from Texas. <laughs> And so the Pope said, Texas, and he kept walking by. He didn't kneel before him, and Patton was furious. What do you think you're doing? I'm your general. He says, yes, but you're not God, and neither is the Pope. There's only one person I have to bow before, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And even General Patton had to agree with that and moved on. We don't have to bow before anybody except God Almighty, and that includes Jesus. Jesus. By the way, this proves that Jesus is God, because we're told not to worship angels and to bow before them, but people bow before Jesus, and He accepted their worship. That proves that He is not an angel. He is God. Go home and read Hebrews chapter one. What's the bottom line of Revelation 19:1 to 10? Simply this: The Lord God Almighty reigns, and we are to worship Him as God to celebrate everything that He does. That's wonderful. It gets better next week. Next week we hit the high point of the book of Revelation, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, grant that we would join that chorus now, shouting and singing hallelujah, praise the Lord. The Lord God omnipotent reigns, and he will reign forever and ever. Help us to worship you when we come together on Sunday mornings. Help us to worship you in lives of obedience, Monday through Saturday. And give us that great encouragement that we are on the winning side, and that wonder of wonders we will be united in heavenly marriage with the Lord Jesus Christ, hallelujah, amen.